How do you respond to God when life is good? In college, my friends and I had a knack for pranking people, especially in the later hours, and we would oftentimes stay up and try to do silly little pranks to other people who were trying to sleep inside of the dormitory. And my college, when I was a senior, they did something to try to stop me from doing that. They made me the residential advisor, I think thinking that I would not prank people as much and that it would give me more responsibility. Well, that wasn't true. It just gave me more opportunities to pull pranks on people. And I can remember one specifically. We woke up a um, underclassman one night, and he got rather upset about it um, because of the way in which we woke him up. And I remember he was very upset, and I went to bed knowing that night that I was going to hear about it the next day probably from the administration. And so I didn't have class the next morning, and I woke up, and all I saw on my phone was a text from the dean of men, who I knew very well, that said, see me in my office at such and such time. And I walked over there, and you know when you're in trouble, and as you're walking over to find out what your punishment is, it's all you can think about, and the minutes seem like hours. And I finally got to where I was talking to the dean of men, and he told me the worst punishment that he could possibly give me. It wasn't a violation. It wasn't a fine. It wasn't you know anything worse than that. But I had to go to the student and apologize and ask for his forgiveness and tell him that I was the one who pulled the prank on him. And I remember setting up that meeting with them and having to apologize and telling them that, you know, I misused my responsibility as a residential advisor and that whole sequence of events. And he forgave me. But in that moment, in that time, my heart did not want to respond with repentance. My heart did not want to respond in the right way. How do you respond to punishment? How do you respond when you know that you are wrong? There's many responses that people can have. Some people get defensive and argumentative. Have you met people like that? You tell them something's wrong. Maybe you haven't even told them that they've sinned in some way, but maybe you're just kind of correcting them a little bit or telling them they need to change something and they get defensive and they get argumentative. Some people clam up and they don't talk to you at all. Some people blame others and they make excuses. Some people try to laugh it off and pretend like nothing ever happened. Well, in the book of Micah this morning, we see God's response to Israel and to Judah because of their sin. And as I read through this text, it's a reminder to myself and hopefully to all of us that we need to respond to the character of God Properly. You see, what would happen in the nation of Israel and in the nation of Judah is that they would oftentimes be saved by God, understand his character. But over time, they would become complacent, they would become sinful, and they would stop responding to God like they should. And in Micah chapter 1 this morning, in the text that Tim read for us, we see on display the full character of and nature, and justice of God. And we need to respond to that correctly. Because responding correctly to the justice of God will preserve us, and responding incorrectly will make us perish. We've got two points in our sermon this morning that I want us to look at. Two different Responses. The first one is this. It's a response of astonishment. 
a response of astonishment that we see here in Micah chapter 1. Look with me at verse 2. We talked about verse 1 last week. It's the introduction to the book. Micah, the son of or Micah of Mauritius, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Those are the kings of Judah that he served under. And verse 2 shows us the prophecy, or it shows us the first message that Micah gives us. There's three messages in the book of Micah. And in verse 2, he introduces the first one with the word hear. It means pay attention or look. Who is he talking to? It says, pay attention O earth and all that is in it. God isn't just talking to Israel at this time, but he's talking to the entire earth and all that is in it. He calls them to attention. Some have called this a divine courtroom setting. It's got the plaintiff God who's bringing a charge against the nation of Israel, the defendants. And the witnesses or the jurors are the entire earth. They're all watching this, but it's not just... The people of the earth, but as we see later, the nature is involved as well. He's calling all of the beings that he's created to come and pay attention to what he has to say. He says, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you. We see that God is not only the plaintiff, he's not only the one bringing a charge against Israel, but he's also the witness. He's the one who has seen what is happening. Notice the way that Micah says the Lord God there. When we see Lord, which is Adonai, and God, which is Yahweh, put together, it means sovereign Lord. Maybe some of your Bibles say that, sovereign Lord. How can God be a witness against Israel? Because he is the sovereign Lord. He is over everything in the earth. There's nothing that he hasn't seen. There's nothing that he hasn't looked at. Nothing takes God by surprise. Nothing catches him off guard. The Lord God, the sovereign Lord, is a witness. He's a witness of these sins, as we'll find out later. And notice that last phrase. It's the Lord in his holy temple. Where is God seated? He's seated in his holy temple, high and above everyone else. We see throughout scripture some different aspects of the holy temple of God. In Psalm 11:4, it tells us that it is where God's eyes see and test the children of man. He looks down from his holy temple. He sees the works of man. In Jonah 2.7, it tells us that this is where God hears our prayers. When Jonah's in the belly of the whale because he's tried to run from Nineveh to Tarshish and Jonah repents, he prays to the Lord in his holy temple because that's where God was hearing his prayer. Other minor prophets like Habakkuk and Zechariah picture the earth being silent before God in his holy temple. This is the dwelling place of the Lord. This is where he resides. It's high and it's lifted up. If you remember in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah pictures God in his holy temple and he's separate from everyone and he's separate from sin. And he's got angels telling him all around him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. What are they saying? They're saying you are separate from sin. You are 
pure, you're high and lifted up. And do you remember what Isaiah's response is in Isaiah chapter 6? He says, woe is me, for I am undone. God, as he's looking at Israel, is high, he's holy, he's separate from all sin. He's in his holy temple. And it's from his holy temple that he witnesses the affairs of men. But notice how it changes in verse 3. He's not in his holy temple now, but look at what it says. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He's coming down from his temple. And he will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. Talking about the mountains. What could possibly make God leave his holy temple and come down to earth? It's because of the sin of Israel. It reminds me of when I was a kid, my cousins and I would spend the night at my grandparents' house and we were really young and we would mess around and joke and laugh when we were supposed to be going to bed. And this was all fun until we heard my grandpa getting up. And when we heard my grandpa get out of bed and his cane knocking against the ground, we all ran and hid and pretended like we were still asleep knowing that he was coming. Now, my grandpa was a pretty easygoing man, but if you made him get out of bed when he was asleep, he was not happy. The Lord is coming down from his holy temple. He's coming down to the earth. And notice how the earth responds. It says, and the mountains will melt under him. It has the idea that God's stepping on the mountains and they're just being crushed. They're being flattened. Now, I know we live in Indiana where there's not a ton of mountains and um, high places around here. But if you've ever been to the Rocky Mountains or the Smoky Mountains, you know what a feat this is for mountains to be flattened. It, he describes them in verse 4. He says it will be flattened like wax before the fire. If you've seen fire melt down wax, it melts very easily. The valleys will split open like waters poured down from a steep place. As he steps on the mountains, they flatten. As he steps on the valleys, they break open because of the majesty and the greatness and the awesomeness of our God. As I've said last week, and as I want to reiterate today, Micah is not just about judgment. It's not just about justice, but it is about a God who is not like us. It is about a holy being who is set apart from us and who is too great for the earth to be able to withstand. If you've ever been um, if you've ever been watching children skateboard, you know that they do all these tricks. I've never been great at skateboarding, but one time I tried to skateboard a couple years ago. I tried to get on a skateboard. And the problem was I was too big for the certain skateboard that I was on and it started to split down in the middle. It wasn't weighted for my weight and how big of a person I actually was. We see the mountains and the valleys melt and split because the earth cannot handle the greatness of our God. And notice in verse 5, why is all of this happening? Why is God calling the nations and the earth to attention. Why is he coming down from his holy temple to the earth? It's because in verse 5 of the transgression of Jacob. 
It's because of the transgression of Jacob. He says, and all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Jacob, we know, is um, Isaac's son and Abraham's grandson. It's often said because his name was changed to Israel. It's often said throughout Scripture, not just in Genesis, but later on as well, that Jacob stands in for Israel. So if you're pronouncing judgment against Israel, sometimes it will say the house of Jacob or the transgression of Jacob. All this judgment, the reason that God is stirred up and that he's coming down to judge the earth and to judge Israel is because Israel has sinned. They've broken God's law. They've transgressed his commandments. And he gets even more specific. He says, and what is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? What is he saying there? Well, Samaria was the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom. We know that the kingdoms were split at this time. And Jerusalem was the capital of the southern kingdom. So in one sense, God is saying that the rich and the elite and the leaders and the prophets, and we'll see this play out in the book of Micah, they have sinned. They have done what is wrong. And because they have done what is wrong, those cities are specifically mentioned and they stand in for these leaders. God is saying Israel has sinned because her leaders have sinned. Judah has sinned because the leaders and the prophets and the kings, the people who were put in charge to do good, would not do it. We looked last week in our overview of Micah when God is denouncing these prophets and these leaders. He says, it's up to you to know justice, but they have no idea what true justice is. And they hate good and they love evil. This was a condition of the leaders. And this isn't to say that the people of Israel and Judah weren't sinful because they definitely were. But the leadership were the ones who were corrupting the nations. They were the ones that were making everything evil. Ultimately, they had transgressed the covenants of the Lord. Now, you've probably heard that word thrown around a lot, covenant. It's an agreement between two parties, between God and man. And throughout Scripture, we see several examples of covenants. The first one is the Noahic covenant. You remember Noah, God flooded the earth, and he makes a promise with Noah and with mankind that he would never flood the earth again. Now, we know he'll judge the earth later with fire and with different earthquakes and things like that. But he promised never to flood the earth again. Secondly, there's the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham, we know, is the father of Israel. And the Lord promised him that he would make him a great nation, that he would bless him. We know that he was older. He didn't have any children. Yet God made this promise to Abraham that he would make him a great and prosperous nation. And he did. Thirdly, there's the Mosaic covenant. Moses, God rescued Israel from slavery and from bondage in Egypt. He sets them apart as a holy nation. He wants to make them his people. And so they have this agreement with God that if they would keep the law and if they would follow his commandments given on Mount Sinai, there would be blessings that followed. But if they disobeyed the law, there would be curses as well. And this is the covenant that Israel had broken. They had not been faithful to God's law. 
they had sinned. Now, there's two more covenants I want to mention briefly. Even though they had sinned against God, even though this is a covenant that they broke, there's also the Davidic covenants. David, who we know is a man after God's own heart, and as David goes to the Lord and says, I want to build you a temple, I want to build you a house, God says, I'm going to build you a house, I'm going to build a kingdom with a king that is going to come from your line, we know talking about King Jesus. And then lastly, in Jeremiah 31, we see the new covenants, the new covenant that God makes with man that I believe is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Israel had sinned, though, by specifically breaking the Mosaic covenant. They had idols. They did not worship God like they should. They had become unfaithful, specifically with their capitals, with their leadership. It would be kind of like saying if there was a judgment that someone pronounced against Indiana, it would be kind of like saying the sin of Indiana is Indianapolis, or the sin of the United States is Washington, D.C., We know that it's not actually the city, but it's the leaders who live there that are making decisions for the people. So we see this transgression of Jacob, this sin of Jacob, and finally this judgment on Samaria. Look look with me at verses 6 and 7. Therefore I will make Samaria as a heap in the open country. Some translations say a heap of rubble. It's going to be utterly decimated. It's going to be rocks lying around everywhere. He continues to describe this, a place for planting vineyards. Well, what does that mean? Well, there's going to be no buildings left, so the entire field is going to be open to planting vineyards and having something else growing there because Samaria would be utterly decimated. And I will pour down her stones into the valley. Samaria was on a hill. It would be destroyed, and the stones would go down into the valley. And then lastly, and uncover her foundations. If you've ever worked on a house, you know the lowest level is the foundation. You've got everything else resting on top of it. Well, if you can see the foundation, that is not a good thing. It means the rest of the house is being destroyed. And God says, I'm going to strip Samaria back down to the foundations because of her sin. We know that this happened. We know that God, even in Micah's lifetime, Micah was able to see this happen, this judgment take place. And in verse 7, we see future judgment or further judgment that happened to Samaria. But we get a picture of what their sin had actually been. He says, All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, and all her wages shall be burned with fire, and her idols laid to waste. These idols, these other gods that they worshipped, would be broken. They would be beaten to pieces. They would be laid to waste. Notice that last line. For from the fee of the prostitute she has gathered them, and to the fee of the prostitute they shall return. Israel not only worshipped false idols, but they had prostitution and they had wicked sexual sin that was happening there. And they collected money from that as well. And so what God is saying is that they would again have prostitution enter that land, but it would be from a different country, signaling the captivity and the wickedness that would come from Israel under a different nation. This is the judgment that would come to Samaria. And and like I said, it would eventually come in Micah's lifetime. The Assyrian army would come through and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. And specifically destroy the capital city of Samaria. 
This is the righteous justice of God against his covenant people because they have sinned. Can you imagine there being people in Israel, normal people like Micah, who I said last week was not a leader necessarily, he was not a rich person, but he's from a small town, he's from a small and significant town. Can't you imagine there being people saying, is God really going to judge Israel? Is he really going to judge us after we've sinned for so long and he's done nothing? Does God really see the sins of others? Is he going to just let us go on like this forever? Sometimes we can grow anxious and we can grow weary because we see the injustice that goes on around us. We see the wickedness of the world around us. And so we respond in rage and we respond in anger and we respond in doubt. We try to take things into our own hands. We don't always trust that God knows what he's doing. We wonder, does God see this injustice here? Does God see this wickedness of these political leaders? Does God see what my co-worker did? Does God see what this company is doing? But as this text tells us, God is eternal. He sees outside of time and he looks down on the earth and he sees everything else happening. He's high and lifted up. He's in his holy temple and he looks down on the affairs of man. The truth is, is that God saw it and God knew it would happen long before you or I ever knew it was going to. The truth is, is that God has perfect justice planned. Do you believe that this morning? We read in Wednesday night about the the justice and the sovereignty of God, that as these nations are plotting against God's people and as they're plotting against his Messiah, God sits in the heavens and laughs and mocks them because God is not like us, because God is sovereign and God always accomplishes his purposes. So instead of worrying and instead of fuming and doubting, the justice and love of God. Can we accept that God is sovereign and that God has a much better plan than you or I could ever come up with? You see, sometimes there's two responses to the character of God. Sometimes we doubt that God is who he says he is. We doubt that he's going to judge the wicked. We doubt that he has a plan. And then other times we doubt God's goodness. We say, how could a loving God send people to hell? How could a loving God let these disasters happen? How could a loving God allow wickedness in our world? But as we read Micah this morning, does it look like God doesn't have a plan? No, God sees everything that is going on in Israel and he's responding accordingly. And sometimes his justice seems harsh. But we trust his wisdom and we trust his goodness and we trust his love that God is working everything out according to his plan. It's a scary thing to be under the holy wrath of God. We see that from history. We see that from Israel's destruction. 
You see, this message that was given to Israel of the judgment that was coming is also given to the nations around Israel as well. He says to the earth, watch and see what is happening. And do you know why he addresses the entire earth as well? Because this was going to serve as a warning to the other nations to repent, to fear the Lord, to walk in his ways. We can be thankful that despite the wrath of God that was going to come down on Israel, that despite this justice, that we also serve a God who is good and a God who is loving. And we, in our time now and seeing Revelation already having taken place in Christ, we can see that that same God who destroyed Israel for sinning, also sent a Messiah to suffer and absorb the wrath of God for us. They responded in astonishment. Secondly, notice this response of lament. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. For this I will lament and wail, and I will go stripped and naked. This is Micah talking now. He's seen the judgment that was going to come on Israel. He's seen all of this take place before him and he says i will lament and wail to go stripped and naked means to be in a state of mourning to be stripped down to your loincloth he says i will make lamentation like the jackals these creatures that were known for their loud wailing or howling that they would utter he says in mourning like the ostriches maybe your bible says owls i think it's better translated as owls or desert owls there because it's a screech it's a horrible deafening screech that these creatures would let out mike is saying that i'm going to wail i'm going to mourn he's lamenting this judgment that would come to israel but he's not just lamenting judgment and i want us to see that this morning he's not just lamenting the destruction that would come to israel but notice verse 9 Why is he upset? Why is he wailing like these animals? Why is he lamenting? Why is he crying? Verse 9. For her wound, talking about Israel, is incurable. This isn't talking about a physical wound. But this is talking about the sin of Israel. The sin of Israel, the wound of Israel, is incurable. It spreads around like a cancer. It would infect the whole nation. And notice what else he says. Her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It not only infected the northern kingdom, but it would infect the southern kingdom as well. And he says it has reached the gate of my people all the way to Jerusalem. We know that not only did the northern kingdom sin, but Judah sinned as well. And this judgment reached all the way down to them. Assyria, the same nation that destroyed Israel, would destroy most of Judah as well. And then they would siege Jerusalem while Hezekiah was king. But we know the story how Hezekiah repented and he prayed for help from the Lord. And the Assyrian army was wiped out in an event so mysterious and so majestic that even historians today can't figure out how it happened but we know that it came from the lord 
Micah is lamenting, he's mourning not just the destruction of Samaria and Israel, but the destruction of Judah as well because of sin. You see, verse 9 speaks to the hearts of the people of Israel and the people of Judah, that their wound was incurable, that sin had infected them, and that it spread like a nasty disease. And we know from God's word that this is true of all of us, that Sin has infected each part of us. That our hearts are, like Jeremiah says, wicked and deceitful above all things. That we don't seek after God like we should. That we commit evil actions and we think evil thoughts because we have evil hearts and desires. When you sin, even just a small fib, even small little White lies that you tell, fits of anger that you have towards others, the times when you become overtly critical, even the larger sins as well. Each time we sin, it's because we have thoughts that are not pleasing to God because we have a desire that is contrary to his. We sin because our heart is infected. Micah is mourning Not only the destruction of these cities, but the destructive power of sin and the destruction it would bring to Israel and to Judah. In verses 10 through 16, he highlights this destruction in a way that we're not quite used to. You see, there's nine cities that are talked about in Judah that are listed here. And he uses a different wordplay to talk about each city, to talk about each city that would be destroyed. And it kind of paints a path. It paints a picture of the Assyrian army going around and destroying all of these cities in Judah. It would go all the way, like Micah said, to the gate of Jerusalem. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know anybody in our congregation that speaks Hebrew. So it's going to be a little bit tricky for us to understand what Micah is saying. But on the PowerPoint this morning, I want to try to help us understand what the message God is giving to each city because it not only talks about the destruction that would happen, but it highlights Judah's sin and God's response to that sin. But before we look at these nine cities, notice the first line. He says, tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. Who do we know that is from Gath in the Bible? It's Goliath. He was from Gath. This is a quotation that Mike is using from 2 Samuel 1 after Saul the king died. Everybody was celebrating except for David, who was mourning and who was upset. And he says this line, he says, tell it not in Gath, because he didn't want the enemies of Israel to rejoice in Saul the king being dead. In the same way, Micah is quoting this to say that the enemies of Israel and the enemies of Judah should not rejoice. He says, weep not at all. I will confess that that second line, weep not at all, is one of the hardest phrases, even for people who know Hebrew, to try to translate. It's very hard to understand. So our best understanding from scholars and commentators is that he is telling them not to mourn before the judgment that is coming to Judah. And then he expresses this judgment, like I said, in nine different cities, nine different plays on words that he Gives. The first one is the city of Beth Le Afra. 
This means dust or dust town. And what Micah is saying here is that dust town or Bethlehem Aphra would roll yourselves in the dust. The city of dust or the town of dust would eventually roll in the dust because of the judgment that was coming to Judah. It would become a house of dust, a house of destruction. Secondly, Shafir. I mentioned this last week. It means beauty or beautiful. It means what is fair, what is good to behold. You could even say it's the city of beauty. But he says, pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and in shame. What is Micah saying? What is this judgment from the Lord? That which is fair would become ashamed because of this judgment. Instead of walking around proud and beautiful and elegant, these inhabitants would walk around in shame. They would walk around in nakedness. We know that this, the country of Assyria took 200,000 captives of Israel. So many of these people were forced to walk all the way back to that country in shame. This town of Shafir. Thirdly, this town of Zanan. You see it at the end of verse, or in the middle of verse 12. The inhabitants of Zanan do not come out. This country, Zanan, means to stir, to come out. And what he's saying is the place of stirring or the place of coming out would come out no longer. They would no longer be able to stir. They would no longer be able to be riled up because they would be destroyed instead of a prideful feeling instead of having some kind of energy they would be silenced they would feel shame in the last part of verse 12 we see the city of beth azil it means house of protection house of protection and he's saying that the house of protection would no longer be safe the lamentation of Bethazel shall take away from you its standing place. This place where people went for protection would no longer be safe because of the coming wrath of God. You see, this was part of Judah's problem. They became wealthy and they became independent. And they thought they had everything figured out that no one was ever going to destroy them. And this house of protection, this place where they felt the most safe was destroyed. Growing up, I was afraid of storms, and when the tornado sirens would go off, I was always thankful to go down to the basement because I knew it was a safe place. My mom told me that the tornado couldn't get us down there if we went down there. So as a child, we'd go down to the nasty and old basement and wait out the storm that would come. The Lord is telling us in Micah that this house of protection would no longer be safe. God would take away the protection that these people thought that they had. Notice with me in verse 12, the inhabitants of Merath wait anxiously for good because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gates of Jerusalem. As these cities are mentioned, the mood starts to heighten. Marath means what is sweet or what is good. 
But here we get this perception that these people are waiting on something good to finally happen. They've been in siege. They've been in war. They're hoping something good would happen, that God would save them, that disaster would not come, and yet they would be destroyed. They were waiting in vain. This disaster would come down from the Lord. In verse 13, Lachish It says, harness harness the steeds to the chariots inhabitants of Lachish. This was one of the biggest cities in Israel or in Judah. They had many chariots and horses, advanced military and technological power. And you see, they started to trust in this power as well, in these advanced weapons and this advanced technology that they had. And notice what Micah tells us. He says, Later, he says, it was the beginning of sin. These people's trust in these horses and chariots and their technology and their military power led to complacency. It led to a lack of dependence on God. It was the beginning of their sin. He says, for in you were found the transgression of Israel. Why did Israel wander so far from God? It's because they no longer depended on him for help you know we see that in our nation today as well the further we become dependent on technology and on our own power and our military and all the things and possessions around us we stop becoming dependent on the lord lakish would be destroyed they trusted in military power they would eventually be overtaken by assyria it's the sixth town that Micah gives us here. We've got three more to talk about. Morsheth Gash, Gath. This was Micah's hometown. It means possession or to be possessed, inheritance, to receive something. What does he tell us here? He says, therefore, you shall give parting gifts to Morsheth Gath. They would be given away as parting gifts. What is possessed, what is inherited, would be possessed by someone else. Akizib, trying to say that the best that I can. Akizib means to deceive or deception. And this is exactly what happened. Israel, Jerusalem, was waiting on this town to send reinforcements because of the coming destruction. And yet they were deceived. The reinforcements never came. And so Micah says the houses of Akizib would be or shall be a deceitful thing. The city of deception or the place of deception would deceive once again. <clears throat> and then finally, Merishath. He says, I will again bring a conqueror to you, Merishath. Merishath means conqueror or to conquer someone. And Micah is saying that the conqueror would be conquered. This place that means conquer would be conquered by someone else. They would no longer stand as the independent people of God. A lot of information, a lot of cities that are talked about here, somewhat confusing in our English language, but we've looked at these the best that we can. The judgment that would come upon the nation of Judah Because of their sin, 
because of their dependence on themselves, because of their idol worship, because they had broken the covenant of God. Notice what he says at the end of verse 15. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. This passage started with a quotation or a reference to David. And then Adullam was the place where David went when he was running from Saul. And he pretended like he was crazy. He pretended like he was mad. And it's one of the lowest points in David's human life. And he says, the glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. This is the condition of Israel. This is the condition of Judah. They had sinned against God and they were being humiliated and destroyed in this way. Verse 16 is a reminder of this, a reminder of the shame that they felt. Again, more lamentation, more mourning. He says, make yourselves bald and cut off your hair. For the children of your delights. Make yourselves bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. He's saying, cut your hair in mourning. Make yourselves bald. Your children would be taken away in captivity. They would be left in exile. This harrowing judgment that comes from the Lord. And so chapter one ends not on a positive note. Not on a happy thought, even though each of these messages has a vision of hope or a message of hope that would come later. And we'll see that in chapter two. Chapter one ends kind of on a negative note. So what can we learn from these verses? First of all, God hates sin. God hates sin. Why did this judgment take place? Is it because God was unjust? Was it because... God was mean. No, it's because these people sinned and God must respond to sin. God hates and despises sin so much that he had to act in justice. God hates sin. Ask yourself, how do I respond to sin? How do I respond to my own sin? When I know I've sinned against God. When I know I've done what I should not do. How do I respond to my own sin? How do I respond to the sin of the people around me? Micah responds in lament. He mourns. He's howling like an, ost- or like an owl. He's howling like a jackal. Now I'm not saying that you should shave your head and you should go on screeching as you leave church this morning. But are you sad over sin? Are you upset? Are you discouraged when you sin? We shouldn't wallow in our sin or self-pity ourselves. But too often we don't feel the righteous lamentation or the righteous mourning we should over our own sin. We're too well trained sometimes to just let it pass by. To not think about our sin like we should. To not confess our sin before the Lord. How do you respond to sin? Micah says the sin of Judah, the sin of Israel was like an incurable wound. It infected the entire nation. Do you recognize the destructive power of sin? Even in your own life, those sins that you don't think about, those things that you just let go by, do you realize 
their destructive power in your own heart. This should lastly make us careful and faithful to follow God and his word. This was written in 700 BC, and we don't live then, obviously, and no one, I think, was alive during that time. We're not under siege of of Assyria. We're under a new dispensation. We're under grace now. But God has still given us commandments to follow. He's still given us promises, and we would do well to be faithful to those as his church. As we think about this this morning, I have a few just final reflection questions for us. First of all, how do you respond? How do I respond to the character of God? When you see his character in scripture, are you prone to doubt? Are you prone to wonder? Do you question whether or not God has a perfect plan? Whether or not he's got it all under control when people are sick? When things don't go your way, do you recognize that he's sovereign, that he's high and lifted up in his temple, that God is not like us? How do you respond to the character of God? Secondly, how do I respond? How do you respond to my own sin and selfishness? When we sin, when we do what we're not supposed to do, are we too often to say, oh, let's just sweep it under the rug. Let's just ignore it. Or do we respond like we should to our sin? Do we keep a short account of sin? When we sin against someone else, are we quick to go and repent and ask for forgiveness? You might think it's not a big deal. It's just a little sin. You see how sin spread in Judah, this little sin that spread like a disease throughout the entire nation to where they were displeasing God how do you respond to your own sin and selfishness? Thirdly, do you follow God's commandments? We're under Christ. We know that he's saved us, that he's died on the cross for our sins. But are we still given commands to follow? Do we love God like we should? Do we love our neighbors like we should? Fourthly, am I trusting in my own riches and possessions or am I trusting in the Lord? When times get hard, when things don't go like they should, when you need something to work out, are you trusting in yourself and your own possessions? Or are you trusting in God? And then finally, do I believe that God keeps his promises? That if God said something was going to happen, it's going to happen. The book of Micah is about the justice of God It's about the faithfulness and mercy of God, as we'll see even next week. But it's also about a God who keeps his promises. If God says he's going to do it, we know it will be so. How many foolish people that we know today that are saying, oh, Jesus is never coming back. Christ won't come again. God isn't going to to judge us. If God said it's going to happen, you can count. You can Put it in the bank that it is going to happen. God keeps his promises. Friends, he's not like us, like the name of Micah tells us. He's a God that is not like us at all. And for that, I know that I am extremely thankful. Because not only is he a God of justice and of wrath, but he's also a God who loves each and every one of us. 
So may we be faithful to serve him this morning, to repent of sin like we should, to trust in his promises. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Micah, a short, wonderful little book that reminds us of the character of God. God, may we be faithful as a church to keep short accounts of sin, to repent when we should. May we be faithful to trust in you and your promises and to worship you as our God. Father, you are great. You are not like us at all. May we be reminded of that each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.